0: Plastic pollution, deforestation, global warming. Sometimes it feels like there's just nothing we can do as individuals about our environmental crisis. But at The Oath Project, we believe that small acts, when done collectively, can create massive impacts. That's why we created this podcast, to share the stories of the individuals who are doing just that, one act at a time to help the Earth. And hey, who knows, maybe after this episode, you'll be inspired to, as we call it, hashtag take the oath and commit to doing just one act at a time. Now on with the episode. Welcome back to One Act at a Time Stories of Change. My name is Sam and I'll be your host for today, also with Shatangshu. Before I begin, I'd just like to have a land acknowledgement. I'm currently on the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Mi'kmaq people, known as Mi'kma'ki or Halifax, Nova Scotia. Shatangshu, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Sure. I'm Shitang Shu. I'm uh, the co-founder and president of the Oath Project. And I'm so excited to be here with Pat, who we've heard so much about and has done incredible things in the UK with her amazing nonprofit and all her work beyond.
0: Yeah. So today we have Pat Smith from Cornwall, UK with us. Pat has spent years cleaning up beaches and has made quite a name for herself doing so. She's recently founded a nonprofit called Final Straw, which is aiming to reduce plastic straws in Cornwall. Thank you so much for being here, Pat. If you'd like to talk a little bit about yourself, please let our listeners know more about you and what inspired your work.
2: Absolutely. Well, on my Instagram account, which is actually called Action Nan, if anyone wants to find (laughs) it, it's a bit of humour, actually, because, again, I'm always out and about doing something. It's in my nature to be active. And my journey started with plastic in 2017 when I watched the film A Plastic Ocean. And when I'd seen it, I was absolutely shocked to the core because until then, I had never realised that there was a problem with plastic at all. When I was a child growing up in the 1950s, because I must say that I am now 72 years old, and I was growing up in the 1950s and my world did not include very much plastic. And I think it was post-war that they actually started developing plastic and i remember adverts which actually sang the praises of this wonderful new material and it was called Mm. plastic fantastic and it has grown so so much in use and without us ever realizing that this wonderful material had no end of life really it was so good and so indestructible that it was going to carry on, well, forever. I mean, 400 years plus for most of it. And of course, we never gave a thought as we consumed ever more of it about where it was going and where it might end up, because virtually indestructible. And obviously, a lot of rubbish is, especially in third world countries, is tipped straight into the sea. And, of course, this plastic gyre that are cropping up all over the world, but the first one really was noticed in the Pacific Ocean. And a lot of it is ending up there. But it's not plastic as people would imagine, buckets and crates and huge things. It's tiny, tiny, tiny pieces of broken-up plastic floating in this awful emulsion that it's slimy, it's toxic, and it kills much of marine life around it. And that, probably realising that and realising that it was my generation who had probably in my lifetime made that pile of rubbish, that I felt this incredible sense of guilt and wondered what legacy I was going to leave for my children and my grandchildren going forward. That sat very heavily on my shoulders and I started thinking about what perhaps I might do to raise awareness of the problem. And the final straw Cornwall was born when I brought about a campaign to talk to hospitality businesses because Cornwall is a big tourist area and we are a long narrow county in the southwest of England and it's surrounded by sea. So any piece of plastic that gets dropped in Cornwall will be in the sea in a day or two and it's washed down into the rivers and streams. And we have loads of beaches. So plastic on the beaches was very evident. And I thought, what single thing could I come up with and see if we could get reduced and people wouldn't really lose any sleep over not having. And I come up with the idea of plastic straws. So we worked with hospitality businesses across Cornwall with a small team, a really small team, maybe at the most 10 of us, knocking on doors, visiting businesses and asking them if they would reconsider using plastic straws because... They had a paper alternative or could give no straws at all, actually. And I don't know about you, but there was this passion about decorating drinks with little umbrellas and kind of paper things and anything that would go in the top to make it look fancy. And all of those things were designed to be used for seconds, minutes before they were going to be thrown away. Anyway, this campaign was really, really successful. And we reckon we had got, you know, a good percentage of the hospitality businesses and their customers. We gave them a sticker to go in the window to say they were a fine straw business. And obviously it got people talking, they, people were asking why they couldn't have a straw, why they were doing it. So it was raising awareness as we went along. And I'm not taking the credit for this, but obviously over the country because we had several groups start up countrywide saying, you know, we see what you're doing. Can we start a similar group? How did you do it? We, we had a few other groups starting up. And then about three years ago, the government put out for consultation a proposal to ban plastic straws, cotton bud sticks, you know, the things you poke in your ears a bit, the holds the two cotton wool things together. And the things you stir drinks with, those plastic stirrers. And about eight months ago, it became law in Mm -hmm. the UK. So no business can serve plastic straws or stirrers or cotton bud sticks. But I am not taking the credit for that. I'm just saying it's an awareness-raising thing that if it spreads far enough and you have enough people joining in, it comes to the attention of your... MPs, councillors, government representatives and saying, hey, there's a problem here. Maybe we need to take some notice. And obviously they did. So we kind of reinvented ourselves last year because... We said, well, you know, we finished with straws. We don't have to campaign about straws anymore. So we decided that we were going to carry on and change it slightly just to say we have a a saying, you know, that's the final straw. I've had it with this. And we're just going to go and work our way around other things. So I'm actually putting together a project about discarded PPE with the pandemic because the whole of the country has gone single-use plastic mad with Mm -hmm. rubber gloves, masks, you know. I'd never picked up a mask on the floor until the pandemic, and now they're probably 50% of what I pick up. So Mm -hmm. there's a big issue, and we had to kind of stop our campaigning for a while during the pandemic, A, because we couldn't go out and talk to people and businesses were shut, But also, nobody was listening. Nobody wanted to hear about the problem with plastic when they were thinking every single thing that they had had to be triple-drapped. Because if they didn't, they would Mm -hmm. die. So, you know, me banging on about the problem with the ocean seemed to be rather too far away for them to even bother. But I must say, the mood has changed, and I think now people are listening again. And I've got a company locally who are making a sustainable PPE products. And I'm working with them. And we're trying to get people to realise that, you know, we need to rein back a bit on what we're doing here and to look at, you know, the long-term harmful effects on the environment with it all. I've finished. Okay. You can talk. <laughs> <laughs> so inspiring,
1: Pat. And I have to ask this. So what's incredible about that story there is you shared how these things that you were starting in the beginning, oftentimes with, you know, and even now, you know, lots of folks having opposition and not kind of buying in. You took what was kind of a local thing, but has become law. So my question to you is, A, how do you overcome those obstacles when you do have people, you know, saying no, or it's not that important or, hey, you know, this is like, I'm not worried about it right now. Why are you bothering me with this? So when you're trying to share these heartfelt stories and people aren't listening, how do you kind of overcome that or how do you get them to turn around? And my second question is, how do you kind of, take that local initiative and turn it into law and how do you like turn it into a massive thing and how do you build that momentum up so it can be this bigger project
2: well obviously we had some opposition and we had some people who weren't interested in joining in and we would just say fine We couldn't go and twist people's arms or I suppose, you know, we could have had a few placards outside their door and things, but I wasn't really into shaming and naming Mm. people. I was into encouraging and enlightening people and really showing them what problems these small things were creating and having discussions about, you know, the end of life of this product. Because most people who are in business, you know, They're trying to do the right thing. You know, one big Mm. thing they're shopping on is price. And, you know, my argument for most of them was that if you don't serve straws at all, you wouldn't have the expense of buying any. You know, we did have some comments from people, disabled people, people in hospitals, people in old people's homes who needed straws to help old people drink. And obviously, you know, We have to say that's okay, that's fine. We're talking about shameful waste, waste of things that are put in drinks just to like titillate you really, to make it look pretty, to, you know, well, for what? I mean, we can all drink without a straw and we could have a paper straw, you know. You have to drink with a straw, it's not the end of the world. So we were lucky in our particular product that there were lots and lots of alternatives and you know I know I'm the last person in the world who wants to walk into a stranger's shop in the middle of the day when they're busy with my clipboard and think you know have you got a minute can you talk to me and they're looking at me and they've got a queue of customers and the answer is no I don't want to talk to you you know I'm just doing my business I'm getting on with selling things you know so we had to go back two or three times sometimes before we found someone to talk to us. Often the person in behind the counter wasn't the manager. You know, we would leave some things behind, but you know, it's quite good working in your local area because you can pop back in at another time. And it's just conversations with real people. You know, I'm an old granny, you know, I'm not sort of anybody who's tall threatening, but you know, sometimes it takes a bit of nerve to go in, walk into, in a stranger's place and say these things. So I'm not saying it's easy. So I think that was question one about yeah, how you yeah, deal with yeah. the naysayers. There'll always be naysayers. There 100%. always will. I think you have to give an argument and demonstrate to them just something that maybe they can go away and think about. Mm. It isn't got to be a yes and no here and now but see what i'm saying have a think about it give mm-hmm. you some alternatives and where you can get them make it as easy as possible to change what they do i
1: love what he shared there too you know it's by encouraging and enlightening, it's not necessarily by naming and shaming it's something that's encouraging and lighting and something that can you know make a bigger impact in the in the grand scheme so my uh, my second question Pat, was around especially for small nonprofits like us, you know, we're just starting out. We're wanting to make a bigger impact. And I think what's inspiring about your story is you create this movement, which has actually turned into like actionable law. That's now, you know, become required everywhere. And so for maybe what advice would you have for folks like us especially youth or really anyone who's just just starting out and they want to make this bigger impact what kind of advice might you have for us in terms of how we can get there where the dreams which we have can become reality at a larger scale
2: I think it's set out your stall quite clearly have hmm. to decide what you can do make it manageable don't think you're going to change the world tomorrow I think you have to pick on something that you know, you care passionate about, whether it's educating local children, whether it's giving talks in schools, whether it's talking to your counsellors, your representatives, people that can make a difference, engaging with, engaging with influencers, you know, you can start talking to people who have got a bigger platform than yours that you can engage with and learn from. I think It doesn't come without putting in a lot of effort. Mm -hmm. But I think you need to be clear what your objective is. And I do think that, you know, there's so many things going on. There's so many things. I mean, at the moment, I'm juggling a number of things. We've got another campaign going on to ban the sale of cheap polystyrene surfboards as we have a lot of these almost throwaway surfboards that cost next to nothing, made from polystyrene, and people buy them on their holidays, and they use them a few times in their holiday week, and they're too big to fit in the car, or they snap really easily. And when they do, millions of these tiny little polystyrene balls go into the sea, and they're a huge problem for cleaning up the beaches afterwards. So we're trying to ban the sale of those things and get people to buy the more expensive ones that they value and want to take home, or use wooder ones or hire wooder ones when they're surfing, because surfing's a big thing in Cornwall. So again, there's little campaigns like this coming on. You know, all good things, all good things about what we can do to change our habits. You know, as individuals, but. I really do think the big changes are going to come from getting government to engage in the problem and starting some kind of regulation. I'm a firm believer myself that we're not going to change too much until we really, really get people to understand what carbon is, what their carbon footprint is, how they use carbon. And I'm a great believer and supporter of a carbon allowance. You would be given a year's carbon allowance and you can decide how you spend it. Number one, that would tell people what carbon they're using, and it would give them a choice of how they use it. So if they choose to fly from here across to the Maldives or over to you or whatever, that takes up a chunk of their carbon. And that might mean that they haven't got enough left to drive to work every day, but it would give them an idea of what carbon is and how they need to spend it very carefully because if we don't i dread to think what will happen
0: exactly yeah and i think folks genuinely have no idea and there's a few tools online i think that you can use to calculate your average carbon footprint in a year but we need more people actually using them and like realizing what it does. Right. And if that leads to, you know, if there's some sort of restriction in real life that if you use too much carbon in a year, there's like a consequence of some sort. Like I think that is what it's going to take for people to really wake up and see the consequences of their own actions. Right. And Sort of shifting a little bit here, but, you know, there's so many great projects that you've been involved in and just the things that you're talking about, all of these different campaigns, like from the straws to your new PPE project, you know, all of these things. How did that focus originally shift? Because I believe you started with beach cleanups, right? And then moving that into something that was a bit bigger. How did that process kind of happen?
2: Well, to be perfectly honest, I mean, the beach cleanups, I was doing them anyway. But again, to try and raise awareness, I just said one day, well, I'm going to do 52 this year. And that that really is how it all started. That's the story. Because to be perfectly honest, again, my advice to you, you want to sell something, make it into a story. And the story was me doing 52 beaches. And it wasn't a problem because I probably did more. I probably did 300 beaches because I'm picking up plastic. I live near the sea. I'm really lucky. I could do a beach clean every day, which I do. So the story was me doing it. And what I did was I wrote about it. So each of these 52 beach cleans was accompanied by a blog, which was talking about what I'd found. And talking about those everyday items and where they might have come from and who might have been using them and how they got onto that beach and what harm they caused in their individual setups, you know, whether they were, you know, a piece of plastic or a piece of styrofoam or a cigarette butt with its highly toxic chemicals inside it with the abandoned fishing gear, the ghost fishing nets that keep on catching fish, even when nobody's coming to empty them or pull them in. And every one of those items had a backstory. So the way I wrote it was really talking about all of the things I found, not just really writing it as if this is what I did today. I found this, I found that, I found that but trying to explain to people the connection between them eating a takeaway from McDonald's and what I found on the beach, you know, how did it get from A to B and what damage was it doing when it got to the sea? So it was kind of like a bit more educational. And I think that was really the platform when I started thinking about my straw campaign because I was very aware of what I was finding, and I was very aware of where it was coming from. And on the beach, there was a significant number of straws, and there was a significant number of these very sharp pointed cotton bud sticks, which were the things that the classic photo of the turtle with the straw up its nose was not really a straw. It was one of those very sharp cotton bud sticks which are really dangerous. And then when you see these films with, uh, like, albatross, and you see, you know, photos of whales that have died with tons of plastic inside them, not just a bit. You know, their poor digestive systems could never work after they've had so much plastic ingested, same as the birds. And I just think if someone doesn't stand up and start to be counted about this sort of thing, you know, People will never realise if they don't watch those kind of films and they don't connect between what they're doing and the effect it has. So a lot of what I talk about now is behaviour change, and that's a biggie. Behaviour change is psychology, and psychology, I'm not a psychologist, but you know, when people say to me they've just seen a guy wind his window Down and throw his takeaway bag out of it onto the floor. And they say, Who does that kind of thing? And I say, Well, I can tell you a lot of people do do that kind of thing. But why? What triggers that when we have free waste collection at home, when we have bins everywhere? Why would someone do that? And that is behavior change. And that's the big thing. And I don't know how to crack
0: that one. For sure. It's difficult. But I remember reading once that at Disneyland parks, they have to have a trash can basically in sight of every single person so that like they have to place them a certain amount of meters apart. So there's literally always one near you that you can go and put your trash in, but they still have folks who need to clean up trash from the ground at the park, even though it's visible to every single person that's there, right? Like it's this psychology thing that I think like, I just, I don't understand, right? I don't understand why anyone would just throw their trash onto the ground or, or not, you know, yeah, it just makes me... Upset. I
2: speak to people like you every day. They all say the same thing. So who are this missing group of people that nobody ever talks to who throw their rubbish on the ground? And I'll tell you one recent thing, because my latest thing is I'm going around to villages and communities locally, and I'm trying to get Groups of interesting people to start their own litter picking groups in their community, again, by way of raising awareness and trying for ordinary people on the ground level to get engaged with what is on the floor, because I think we're getting litter blindness because there's so much. People are driving past it, they don't even see it anymore because it's just, they're everywhere. And um, doing my own, because I have one in my community and walking around with them last month, we got outside a restaurant behind the kitchen window and there was a place where they were, we counted them because there were so many, 193 cigarette butts outside this window. So we went round to the restaurant owner and said, they are all the same sort of cigarette as well. they have been rolled up themselves without proper filtering. And we said, you've got one of your members of staff who's smoking outside this window. And it would be really, really good if you could give them something to put the cigarette butts in, an ashtray of some kind. So... The next time we walked round, there was a terracotta flower pot outside the kitchen window. And in the terracotta flower pot was probably, you know, so deep a cigarette buds. And around the terracotta flower pot, there were 55 more.
0: Yeah. Oh gosh, that makes no sense. Kind of on that topic. I think we're all aware of this, but why is it so important for people to be educated about this and for people to pick up their own trash and for people to take care of the earth? Why is it so important in
2: your own words? That's a really difficult question because why isn't everybody like me? Why isn't everybody doing what I'm doing? Because if we all did, then obviously. we would have a cleaner, better, a more caring group of people inhabiting this planet. I do it because I said to you, number one, I had this overwhelming sense of guilt of being responsible for what I saw in that film, which opened my eyes and made me do research as to what was going on and what the problems were. Because no good going out and setting yourself up because You know, you will be challenged and you need to have some background knowledge in order to answer those questions that you will be asked. So I also, number one thing is that I care. I personally care about this wonderful planet that we live on. The next thing is that if we don't do something about it now, we know that we're going to reach some catastrophic tipping points And me worrying about my grandchildren might mean that if we don't do something, they may not be able to survive. And also, as David Attenborough always says, that there are too many of us. The problem is that why should we do something is that, you know, whereas we multiply the numbers of us, The problem increases if we don't keep our houses tidy. We don't look after where we live, then we're going to be drowning in the stuff and it will not be tenable. You know, we won't be able to survive it. It's that serious. Okay, it might seem like a little bit of sweeping up at the moment, but the sweeping up is only like teeny, teeny bit of the problem. So... It's about raising awareness, I'm afraid, for the good of all. I mean, it's no point to me when people say there's no planet B or save the planet. To me, it's not about saving the planet, because when we're gone, the planet will be a much better place and it will save itself. It'll probably readapt. It'll change whatever it looks like isn't probably going to be what it looks like now. But without us on it it'll be a darn sight easier to manage for nature, that's for sure.
1: I guess, Pat, as we kind of wind down here, what keeps
2: you going? What keeps me going is the fact that I see see no improvement in this stuff. (laughs) And I think, my God, you know, aren't people listening? You know, I'm not doing my job properly. It's getting worse, not better. So... Yeah, I do have those little people in my head a lot of the time. And I worry about what the future is going to hold for them. So if anything keeps me going, it's my love for my family.
1: I mean, on a more optimistic side, is there any kind of other examples of projects or events or other things that you want to highlight in terms of things that maybe give you hope? What gives you hope amidst all of that? Uh,
2: What gives me hope? I must say young people give me hope. Mm. Even I classify you in my wise old years as young people. I actually do quite a lot of talking in schools and beach cleans with schools. And the children get it. Mm. The children really get it. They go home and tell their parents. They can explain quite clearly why what they're doing Mm. isn't a good idea. And my hope lies with those young people. If we could get enough people in the middle to really, really understand and engage, then really I think my hope for the future lies with the young and that gives me strength. When I'm surrounded by those young people, they give me hope because they really, almost to a T, they're always always understand and want to do better, want to do more. They get it. I think they're just, they have a lot more exposure to the world thanks to TV these days and obviously films and things. And they see more, they know more, but they're prepared to do more about it, I think. And I'd love to see the passion of people like you who are going, this is not okay. We really do not want this to happen this is our future. Even in your time, you know, the difference in my 70 years, my memory bank of how the world has changed so dramatically. And I get asked quite often about, well, you know, what did you do growing up? You know, I didn't have any plastic in my life. How did I cope? I cope really well with no plastic. You know, I use like a straw shopping basket my mum had. And, you know, we had cups and sauces that we washed up. (laughs) No one in my day ever walked along the street eating. I think the takeaway food industry has been the biggest single change. Food on the go, and it's a nightmare with its associated packaging. So the young give me hope. Appreciate
0: Thank you. That's a really lovely thing to say. And for our Very last question that I've got here for you. For the youth that are listening and for people who are not young, who are also listening, how can people get involved either in you know campaigning to remove one straw at a time or helping one beach at a time or how can they get involved doing that in their own community either near you or abroad kind of like any final words of advice for people
2: i get approached by people all over the world now it's just amazing and i have a a lovely lady who is she north of San Francisco. She lives near a beach. She's my age and she does very, very similar things. And she's got a community over there picking litter up off the beach. I think the biggest way to start is to get together with a group of like-minded people and I think to start up community groups, you know, you don't have to live near the sea. The majority of plastic and litter in the sea comes from inland. Wherever you live there will be litter on the streets, on the highways, on the roads, wherever you are there will be litter. I talk about litter because I'm involved in it a lot, but litter's not the only problem we're facing obviously, you know, carbon's the biggest problem we're facing, but once you start people on their journey of understanding about the small things that they can connect with the simple things that they can do like a straw like getting together with a group of people like with mine I started with three of us in my small village and now we regularly have 20 people come out different people to do litter picking. We have several restaurants who take it in turns to give us complimentary coffee or tea when we finish. And we'll sit together and we'll talk and we'll share stories and we get to know one another because people come from all over the place. This last month, I had three mums come with their toddlers, their preschool children for the first time. And that was so exciting for me because it's sort of like they're the youngest of young to get doing this so I think it has to start where you live it has to start with your community and the whole community make it totally inclusive make it something fun to do you have a cup of coffee at the end you chat someone tells someone you make a Facebook group you tell people what you're doing they see it they come along and it grows, because you make it, you know, like, you get a brownie point for helping clean up your village, you get a brownie point for chatting to new people and making friends, you get a brownie point for going out in the fresh air. There's, like, so much we can do, and I'm working with another group now called Women in Travel, and we're talking about trying to empower people who are not as fortunate as ourselves, who haven't got, ability to necessarily be able to go and do these things without help but i think it's make it inclusive make it for everyone make it something but you start with your friendship group you start with your local village you start with your school or your college or you know put it up on the notice board say how about doing this i didn't know anyone was going to come i've been doing it on my own for years i didn't know anyone else was interested in joining in until you make it happen and then you'll be surprised who'll come. Amazing. That's
0: a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Pat. This was an amazing discussion to have with you. We really appreciate your time today and coming to talk to us and being on the podcast. And thank you so
2: much. You're very welcome. And it's lovely to meet you out of the blue, all those miles away <laughs> and keep doing what you're doing. Starting is the biggest thing. <music> Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of One Act at
0: a Time, Stories of Change. We would love to hear your thoughts on Instagram or Facebook at Take the Oath. And to learn more about the Oath Project or to nominate someone for this podcast, visit oneactatatime.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, subscribe and share it with your community so that we can inspire more people to hashtag Take the Oath. That's it from us, and we will see you on the next episode.